Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner. I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Elena Bale, an actor you may recognize from her appearances on Cardinal, Killjoys, Transparent, and Sort of, among a dozen other shows. She's also turning up in feature films, most recently in Enhanced, Loon, and The Marijuana Conspiracy. And now she stars in Blaine Thurrier's Kicking Blood, playing Anna, a depressed vampire who decides to help suicidal alcoholic Robbie, played by Luke Billy, get off the sauce. The film premiered at TIFF last year, and it arrives on digital and on-demand next Tuesday, June 21st. Alana picked The Blair Witch Project, the 1999 indie horror smash that pulverized audiences and made found footage a viable storytelling format. Produced on a budget that wouldn't even staff a craft services table on a studio picture, and powered by the deeply sympathetic performances of Heather Donahue, Michael Williams, and Joshua Leonard as three film students whose documentary project becomes an impossible endurance test, Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez's ingenious creeper thrusts its unprepared heroes into a landscape of ancient, seething evil and traps us there with them. That's the genius part. This is someone else's movie. I have so many feelings surrounding The Blair Witch, and um, I actually came to it pretty late in life, but I have memories and feelings from childhood and my teenage years that surround The Blair Witch without having ever watched it. And I actually only watched it two years ago, okay. which is shocking. Um, but my... So I have three older siblings and my eldest sister, she's six years older than me. So uh, she was 13 years old when she went to go see the Blair Witch in theaters. And my memory of her experience was that she went to the theater, she left after 20 minutes and was like projectile vomiting in the stall and couldn't go back to see the movie because it was terrifying and the shaky cam. So that was the taste that I had in my mouth. Surrounding Blair Witch, anytime anyone brought it up. And I thought that I had seen the movie because it was so pervasive in pop culture. I, I was certain that I had seen it. Fast forward to two years ago, and I see it for the first time at the drive in in Ottawa. And it was like that experience alone was was magical. I I went with my partner and we were in the middle of like this it was an empty field. It was, it was in the middle of nowhere. It's like there were string lights and porta potties, whatever you need for, for the film. But, but essentially you're in the middle of nowhere. It's pitch black and you're watching the Blair Witch at the drive-in. And on top of that, it was raining. So that was my first actual viewing of the Blair Witch, which was terrifying. It was terrifying. Um, yeah. And I left, I left the drive-in being like, I've never seen that movie. That was the first time that I saw it, and it was everything and more than I thought it was going to be and wanted it to be. Um, Yeah, so I just, it's funny because I'm still sort of new to the movie, but it feels like it's been a part of my life since I was six years old. Yeah, it's remarkable, isn't it? it's a film about a legend that's completely invented, but it has become a legend itself. Like it's, it's such a fascinating test case for like creating new mythology, for creating new horror. And uh, I mean, I saw it back at, I, I had, I couldn't go to the press screening. I had to, I had to go on opening day. I think it was July 31st, 1999. It was the week before the sixth sense came out. 
That was the big Ooh, deal. Like those whoa. two, those two pillars of oh my god, yeah, nineteen ninety nine horror. Um, Were they pitted against each other? Do you remember, or was it just like? completely different lanes that they I were. Think, yeah. I don't think there was any sense of competition. Also, nobody knew what the sixth sense would be. Like Disney uh-huh. just sort of put it out in August because August is where you put the films. You didn't know how to market. Oh my God. Um, and then as soon as it turned out to be like this monster pop hit, um, the Blair Witch Project, Blair Witch Project premiered at Sundance. So it had seven months of, of buildup before and then of course like this unprecedented internet marketing campaign which was just this perfect timing of the internet itself being new enough to people that if you heard about this weird story that you couldn't quite it's not like now where you can find immediately um you can discover i'm trying to figure out how it works because now misinformation is so prevalent on online and there are entire industries of creating false facts but the blue witch marketing around the Blair Witch Project was so simple, which is that they just didn't tell anybody it was a movie. Like yeah. this thing, we're talking about this thing on news groups and on websites and the websites were just, just spooky enough, just vague enough. It was a masterpiece of, of marketing that took advantage of people's ignorance around the internet, but not around general ignorance. And now I think that's what people have learned from it. Oh, right, that, yeah, the, the marketing campaign was so brilliant absolutely could not be done right now in the age of social media alone the the actors no one knew that that these yeah. three were actors but i mean you could find out that heather mike and josh went to cabo last week on their instagram nowadays and figure out that they're an actor but yeah it was the perfect timing that internet for everyone was sort of in its infancy and mm-hmm. i think that people really um thought that it was it's truthful, but now we know that you can't believe everything you read on the internet. <laughs> yeah. Oh, at least you shouldn't. Um, yeah, but, but it was one of those things where all I knew was everybody loved it. Like, that was, that was really the only thing. Cause I tried to, I tried to avoid trailers. I tried to avoid marketing whenever possible. And in 99, it was even easier to do that. So I just went in cold. To How did the, you get around the word of mouth though? Like, was it so buzzy? I knew it was, I knew it was building. People were excited to see it, but that was really all of it because no one had other than the Sundance stuff, which I just didn't pay attention to deliberately. Like it was really easy. If you, if you didn't see the trailer, which I just lucked out and wasn't in front of anything that I saw that summer. Um, If you didn't see the trailer, you could go in knowing only that it was a movie that did really well at Sundance and scared the hell out of everyone. And you could know almost nothing, which I did. Um, And then of course it, just the other brilliant piece of marketing, which was added as, as I understand it, it was added after Sundance is the opening text, which tells you the footage was found and the kids were never seen again, which turns it into a tragedy, right? It's, it's this, it's genius for horror because it tells you whatever's coming is lethal, right? Like this footage is all that's left, which means there's a mystery, which means that we're hurtling towards something. And because found footage was still newish and fresh, it hadn't already fallen into the expectation that we all have now with found footage where it's like, if this movie isn't good, you're trapped and nothing can happen until it's over. Right. Because someone's holding the camera. (laughs) It's so true. It's so true. Now we just, it's, it's, that's where my brain goes when I'm trying to figure out what's happening in the film. When I'm, when, when I'm watching something and experiencing it, um, unless, I mean, there are exceptions like Chronicle and Cloverfield where 
it's just having a blast with the, the liberation of found footage or it's doing something to make us connect to the story. But so many of them are just, we're going to hint at things that the narrator can't discover until the last, like every paranormal activity movie is designed along. A, it's not even a roller coaster. It's all up. Right. And eventually you, you yeah. plummet at the very end. Absolutely. But, but with Blair Witch, it just, it opens by telling you they're not going to be ever, like, this is going to go badly no matter what. Yeah. And then it opens with Heather just goofing around and doing a, a Homer Simpson voice. And it makes it real. Like, it makes it feel so, in a weird way, like it is cinema verite. It's just cinema verite of something that doesn't exist. But it, Absolutely. But it's so empathetic and sympathetic that we are with those kids right away. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you're interested in their interpersonal dynamics. You're interested in the stories that they're telling, the... The editing is also all like it's insidiously clever because it's all organic. It's you're seeing their rough cut with the last Mm. reel stuck on the end as a single continuous take. But the the fact that someone has assembled it makes perfect sense because they're working on it as they go until they go into the woods. And then it's just a straight line of these two of these two cameras. uh, There's no getting off the roller coaster at that point. Yeah. And it's just and it's great. Like it's it's lightning in a bottle. They got three actors who had chemistry, but also could fight with each other. Yeah, Talented to Mm -hmm. find actors that, that can improvise in that way for, I think they shot over the course of eight days or something. Yeah. Days on end. And I think that, I mean, it's in part due to the fact that there was no script. It was so rough. Um, And I guess they had an outline of, of, you know, where they needed to be or what they needed to say. Uh, Just very skeleton uh, script, if you can call it that. But I think that that's the main reason. You have three really talented actors that vibe together and no script. Obviously, some sort of magic is going to come from that. And it usually always does in this type of improvisational, guerrilla-style filming. Yeah. And the... um... And the fact too that that Sanchez and Myrick are willing to keep in weird things that don't make sense. Like the the um, I think it's the first night when the tent starts shaking. Mm-hmm. I think it's Josh. I don't know who says it, but somebody says, "Is that them fucking with us?" And they're referring to the filmmakers. Of course, yeah. And it doesn't right. matter, right? Because we're we're so in the moment with them that it it could be villagers, it could be the people they've interviewed. Like it's just such a perfect vague thing to say. And if you don't listen close enough, it's it's gone in a in a second. There's so much going on. The mm-hmm. the the audio the audio is incredible. It's it hurts your ears at times, but in the best way because it makes it even more terrifying. But uh, yeah, yeah, you're so right. That one moment, I think, uh, in reading up on uh, you know trivia, they did say that it was the the producers so my mind immediately pictures the PAs on set just like bongo drumming this tent but in the moment you think yeah it could be the serial killer it could be the Blair Witch it could be an animal it could be anything and the reactions whatever it is work perfectly it's naturalistic horror which is my favorite kind of horror Mm. um I think it's people trying to figure out how to respond rationally to something that isn't and and won't be negotiated with and gradually over the days, as you realize, not only are they walking in a circle, but 
the woods are much, much bigger than they could possibly be. Everybody who's ever wandered off in the dark has had that moment where like you understand just how quickly it's like, it's the, it's the, it's the crux of every survival story where, you know, it's one bad decision and you break your leg, you fall out, you never, you're never seen again. And it's just about how the, the there's this underlying tension, this idea that, yeah, we think we're the apex predators, but if you, you know, step on a nail, you're going to die of tetanus. If you go oh, out yeah. into the woods, something can bite you or eat you or just curse yeah. you. And, and, the idea that they don't do anything like they're I've watched it enough times to know there's no inciting incident, right? They don't piss off the witch. They maybe disrespect the idea of curses, but there's nothing they do other than just go the wrong way mm-hmm. and it never ends. And, it's and there's just, nothing they can do to get out of it. Yeah. yeah. It's, and then they start turning against each other from completely natural reasons uh, and also, I love the idea, too, that the paranoia that starts to pop up is partially real because the other thing that the filmmakers were doing was slipping them notes every day on what their characters are doing. So Mike knows he's thrown the map away, mm-hmm. but it doesn't catch up to them for days. And yeah. he's carrying it with him and he's being a little shifty here and there. But you don't see it until like your third or fourth time through the movie because you're too scared. You're too worried. You're trying to grasp on to whatever's going on to make sense of it the same way they are. I mean, it's just this beautiful act of, of making the audience identify with these kids. Yeah, totally. I just keep coming back to that because it's, the, it makes it so sad. Yeah. Yeah. It's the most relatable horror movie that I've ever seen. And there are so many components to why it's terrifying. You mentioned, you know, just being, in the woods alone, if you step on a nail, you're fucked. You're done. You're in the middle of the woods. They yeah, yeah. they are up against animals, village people, this paranormal entity, a witch. Like, being in the woods alone is a horror movie. But they just, they just loaded on all of everyone's fears into one, into 90 minutes. And they came so ill-prepared, too. They had marshmallows and Vienna sausages. There's a, they came with no <laughs> weapon. Granted, I know that they only planned to be in the woods for, what, maybe two days. But uh, so ill-prepared. So ill-prepared. They had lots of batteries. Yes, yeah. that they had. Oh, my goodness. Their backpacks. Watching them cross the stream with their 50, 60-pound carriage of bags nah yeah no that's it I, my my response to all of these horror films is that it's easy for me to disconnect because I'm the guy who'd just say well I'll see you when you get back you know I'll never fall off the mountain I'll never get eaten by the cannibals none of this will happen and yet it doesn't matter because their responses are exactly how I would do it I would be absolutely I would be sure I could help but I would be useless and I know that about myself oh my um, gosh yeah the the moment that uh, what what I noticed, uh, so I watched it for a second time last oh, yeah. week. What I noticed was how deep into the movie the hopelessness sets in because it's actually further along than I would have thought. I would have been on day two. I would have been I, w- I would have been inconsolable. But it actually sets in pretty far into the movie, and then it's just like downhill from there. You understand just how 
hopeless it is. And I think a part of me, even though the opening credits say that, you know, it's found footage. So obviously these three are dead. There's still, there's still some hope that there will be at least some relief throughout the movie. Um, but there's not, we get a glimpse of, of, uh, relief when they're losing their minds and they're going to hysterics right before Mike comes clean and says that he kicked the map into the the creek. But that was, that was the only relief that you get. Uh, and then I think from there on, it's just like, well, it's hopeless. And the fact that we as an audience feel that way and know that they are all doomed to maintain our attention and, and, uh, you know, I was excited to get to the end to see, to see how they all perish. <laughs> yeah. It's, and it's, oh, it's awful. It's awful. It's, it's awful because we have suggestion already. We found the bits of Josh, um, oh. assuming that was Josh. I mean, who knows? It was, I think it was just, I think, what was it supposed to be? Some, like smoked turkey or something and some, and giblets or something, just pieces oh, of meat that they wanted guess. to use and a couple yeah. of teeth that they got somewhere. Um, <laughs> that they just found somewhere under someone's pillow. Yeah, I'm assuming. <laughs> There's probably a store in Maryland for that. Um, Absolutely. It's America. <laughs> yeah. Hey, it's Norm, interrupting my own show to tell you about the new Shiny Things newsletter, my weekly dispatch about physical media, culture, and maybe even the odd streaming thing. This week, we're all about the art house, as Film Movement releases Simon Lang's Vive L'Amour and I catch up to Criterion's recent Blu-rays of Powell and Pressburger's The Tales of Hoffman, Juzo Itami's The Funeral, and Bertrand Tavernier's Round Midnight. Subscribe for the price of a latte at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Simcast Twitter account. It's me, writing about movies again. Come check it out. It's such a weird thing. Like the stick men are this great iconic image and you know what it is the moment you see it. It speaks to some weird ancient wicker man kind of deal. It's like the history of folk horror in there. But they're just stick men, right? Like they're there's they're they're weird, but they could simp there could be a logical explanation. And yeah. then you find pieces of your friend and there's just yeah. That's sort of the second capper for the, the hopelessness. You're right. It, it comes later than organically, just because I think it would be like too painful to watch them scream and be miserable for like 45 minutes. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But you do like that, that heartbreaking moment when Heather says like, you can almost, you can hear her muttering it because, and again, this is the genius of the, of the format. The camera picks it up, even though, um, when she just kind of quietly says it is the same tree after all the arguing that it isn't, it's just when she's admitting it to herself that they're, that this is it. But you don't get that without the camera having the microphone built in as opposed to the 16 mil where the sound rig is separated and you get that incredible eerie stuff towards the end. Mm-hmm. They were just so smart about what was possible. And by limiting the horror to insinuation and props it makes it even worse because you never, I, I mean, I totally understand why people got uh, motion sickness in the film. You're scanning <laughs> the frame, looking for something that's going to burst out at you at any second. Because Absolutely. like, that's the prey thing. You, you suddenly realize it's everywhere and I don't know where it is and I'm terrified. And now mm-hmm. I have to help them by seeing if I can see it coming. And then in the end, there's nothing to see, which is even worse. I mean, people were saying at the time that they saw the witch 
uh, in a couple of shots. And there's some shadows that might kind of constitute, you know, because the brain has a habit of making faces out of things that look like they could be faces. But there's nothing there. Like the everybody talked about it. It's like, nope, there's, like, it's no. your imagination terrifying you. It's so much more effective than building a witch and showing it to you. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that, uh, I, th- I did read somewhere that they, 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 uh, made alternate endings and some, some endings, the witch was shown, but uh, I mean, it's just fact that nothing, uh, nothing that CG or practical effects, uh, can make will be as terrifying as as the inner workings of your brain. Uh, and to your point, this bundle of sticks, the the sticks and just a pile of rocks are all you need to insinuate this witch. And who knew that a pile of rocks could be as terrifying as 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 they were depicted in in this movie? Uh, but no, it's uh, brilliant that they didn't show the witch. It would have it it would have taken me out of it completely. I'm, I'm, I'm just remembering, I think, um, after the scene, after the, um, the tent is being pounded, they're, they're running and running and running. And apparently they did have, uh, someone dressed as the witch to the, uh, left of the screen. And I guess the, whoever was holding the camera, the cameraman or whoever it was, they forgot to pan and they just kept on running. So all you can hear is Heather say, what the fuck is that? Yeah. Uh, but it's like a, a, the best happy mistake that this person forgot to to pan. And they just stuck with the actors. Because, again, it just it, it would have taken me and I, I assume a lot of audience out of the moment. And it would have ruined the illusion of whatever whatever they were creating in their imagination. Yeah. I, I personally love the idea of never knowing. Some nerd site uh, broke the news that there was an action figure, that someone has made an action figure of the Blair Witch, a licensed action figure called the Blair Witch. And it's, um, it kind of looks like you would expect it to look like this sort of vaguely feral person in rags Mm. holding, holding a big stick. I'm not sure what the significance of the big stick was, but it also has... I guess. Yeah, it's true. If you're you're a 200-year-old exiled witch, you'll probably need some support. Um, But what surprised me is that they never went with Rustin Parr. They never tried to build anything out of that. This this story of someone who is uh, an accomplice at best to the witch, right? Someone who was like the first first hint that this is being layered, that there's more story that we have to build in our heads, uh, are the stories of Rustin Parr, who famously had his victim stand against the wall while he argued with the witch. And that's, I mean, that last image of, of Mike facing the wall is just so, I just, how did Nailing. it play? Yeah. How did it play for an audience at a drive-in? I mean, do people honk their horns? Do they, is there a response? No, it was silent. Cause I think every, everyone, I, everyone, at least the car surrounding us was silent because it, it was terrifying. You're not only seeing it on this massive, massive, screen but the images that you're seeing are directly outside of your car too so i think uh no it wasn't um there was no shouting or screaming or honking of horns i think everyone was just fully sucked in and in it but yeah that that last image is chilling yep and perfect right i mean it is it it depends on us to make the connection of something that was mentioned like 70 minutes ago 
but it lands so hard. Um, I mean, I remember at the time there was some confusion. There was a lot of arguing on on Usenet groups because I was single and and had nothing else to do <laughs> at two in the morning when I got home, and I was I was reading up on it online and the in the Usenet groups about how people were just refusing to accept that that's what it meant that it was a connection, and they didn't know about Rustin Parr, they weren't interested in that story, or that was dumb, or that meant that there was no witch and Rustin Parr was still alive, and oh. messing with people decades later. And I guess th that's not an unreasonable explanation for something if you need to, like if you're refusing to believe in the supernatural explanation. But it it seems pretty clear to me that this is all part of a cycle. And even though we never see, like there's no evidence of anything supernatural, it's all over the place. Like the mm -hmm. film is suffused with, the story rather is suffused with it. Absolutely. Which is yeah, so there's, uh, um, with, Rustin Parr. So th in my mind, there are three, there are three categories of evil in this that only two are touched on in the beginning. And that's Rustin Parr and the murdering of the children. And then the, the coffin rock, the right. murdering and defiling of these five men. Uh, and then the Blair Witch. And because it's not explained to us, which I think is great. Tell the audience less, let them come to their own conclusions. Um, it does frustrate me just the tiniest bit because I want some sort of semblance of, of, you know, uh, bow on the end of the movie. But sure. again, it just doesn't make it as scary because you still, you have these three potentially separate, potentially, uh, linked, uh, atrocious events, uh, that may be done by this one overarching, umbrella paranormal entity, the Blair Witch, or it could all just be a coincidence. And, and this, this area in, in this specific wood in Maryland is, is just haunted. I don't know. And it's interesting that every, every single person will have a different, a different view of different take on, on what went down. Sure. Uh, but I'm, I'm not surprised to, to hear that there was a lot of discourse and, probably people feeling unsettled by by the lack of a resolution on these forums and probably still today. Yeah. I mean, the idea of people walking away going, nothing happened. That was dumb. I get it. You couldn't connect. Like you, for whatever reason, you couldn't connect to these characters or the story. But, oh man, it had me from the first frames. It just had me. And it still works. Like it really still plays. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out a way to, to, curate a program of films that were made at the at that weird pivot point in digital when everybody thought HD cam would be the future and it turns out that everything from that point looks like garbage but here it works like here it actually looks like deterioration and 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 verite footage um the 16 and the and the video just play off each other in a really interesting way but the years that have gone by have only sort of made it stronger because now it feels even more like an artifact. Like this is a horrible thing that happened. And the true crime genre that sprung up has strengthened Blair Witch in a different way because now it feels like a how-to, right? Like for, for storytellers that don't have an ending, this is what you would do to structure your true crime story when you don't have a, a you know, when you don't have someone to hold accountable. This is the kind of narrative that works for people. And it's been turning up in other cultural places uh, for 20 odd years now. And I, I find that really fascinating. And it's 
it's never really died. Um, I mean, there's no point of a, like a 4k Blu-ray coming out because I don't think you can add any more definition, which is fine. Right. Right. I'd love to see someone take a run at it and, and reconstruct it as a theatrical experience and try to recapture the power of it. The drive-in is sounds like a pretty good idea. If you strand people alone with it, they're going to relate to it differently than they would at a Cineplex. Absolutely. Or just watching it on their laptop or in the comfort of their own home. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, No, that's, yeah, that's, that's interesting. The format that it has is because it still follows the typical beginning, middle climax, and then uh, an end, but um, it's disturbed. It's a disturbed version. It's a distorted version of it. Uh, and trying to think like unsolved mysteries is, is a good example. You have no resolution for that. Uh, I, I remember watching a few episodes here and there when I was super, super young, but I, from what I can recall, they sort of follow the same, the same structure. Cause the idea is strong enough. And, and I'm glad they never showed the witch in the other films subsequently to, you know, make it somehow retroactively better for people that, are angry at not seeing something. Uh, have, have you seen the two other films? I have not. And okay. I've had the opportunity to, and I don't want to, <laughs> I just don't want to. Um, it's and not that I think that the original will be tainted if I watch, if I watch those movies, but something is keeping me from watching it. Cause I think it's, Blair Witch is just preserved in my mind as an almost perfect horror movie. And, and I don't know, I'm, I'm afraid, I'm afraid to watch it. I assume you've, you've watched the sequels. I've seen them. Yeah. I, I respect what's done in Book of Shadows. They tried to make a glossier, more conventional horror film and they got Joe Berlinger, who's this remarkable documentarian. He made the Paradise Lost films and uh, he made the Metallica film, Some Kind of Monster. He's he's a genuinely interesting filmmaker, and you can kind of feel the ideas that he brings to it pushing up against the demands of, of the studio that wants a conventional horror film about people obsessed with the Blair Witch. But it does have some fun things to say about fan culture, really, more than anything else. And, and it predicts some stuff that's going to happen online where people become far too invested in something that they cannot, they didn't create and cannot control. Hmm. So it's worth a look, but you can watch it without, um, it doesn't dent the original film in any way. Okay. And, I can compartmentalize. Oh, easily. Yeah. Okay. It, it doesn't even look or feel like the original, which was the goal. So that'll be easier. Then, then there's Adam Wingard's film from 2016, which I really like. Um, it's another found footage treatment. It, does something fun with the fan speculation after the original Blair Witch, where it so its take on it without without giving anything away, its take on the mythology is that everything could be true, like every possible interpretation could come into play mm-hmm. at any given moment in this version of the story, and it picks up, you know, fifteen years later with a with a new cast uh, of of interesting. Charming actors. Uh, Callie Hernandez is the lead. Um, she was one of Emma Stone's roommates in La La Land, which I actually uh-huh. saw back to back. I saw those two films back to back on one on one day uh, at TIFF screenings. Um, <laughs> okay. At 
at noon and three or something like that. But I didn't recognize Hernandez. And you couldn't ask for a better experience of, of her range than to see her singing and dancing and being incredibly charming and then running through the woods screaming and crying and covered in blood. Um, she's in The Flight Attendant now, the new season. She's um, oh, she's yeah. the, she's she- one of the two. Um, I've only, I'm only halfway through, so I'm not totally sure what her role will be, but she's, uh, she's the woman who takes hostages with her partner and, and closes yes. the cell phone at the very beginning. That's, yeah. that's Callie Hernandez. And, okay. Okay. Yeah, she's okay, she's right pretty on. interesting. And what Wingard and Simon Barrett did in, in Blair Witch is find a way to acknowledge like right off that there's no way you can make a satisfying sequel and then just try something. And these are the guys that made the guests and you next. Yeah. They're, they know what they're up against. And I, I interviewed them at TIFF at the time. And that was basically, it. it's like, there's no way we can win, but we can make a movie that we want to make and tell a story that could be fun. And and it works. I'd be curious to know what you think, just because it is so, it's a good companion piece. It's faithful, but it also does that legacy thing where it can stand completely alone if it has to. But if you know the material, there's, there's stuff to enjoy. Okay. I... We'll take your word for it. And I trust you. I see the amount of movies behind you and knowing, knowing your line of work. <laughs> I will watch it. I will. When you're ready, you know, give yourself time. It's okay. It, like That's the other thing too. These films are fixed in their own moment. They're not going anywhere. Absolutely. Yeah. I think I just, I need to, um, I'm, I'm very particular about when and where and how I watch certain movies. Oh yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I, especially for horror movies, it needs to be at night, lights off. If it's raining, excellent. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I will definitely, yeah, take a look at that because I really appreciate filmmakers. If if a sequel is in play, you like you said, Blair Witch was lightning in a bottle. You can't recapture that. You can't redo it. No matter how hard you try, it's just gonna fall short. It's gonna seem false, but. But the fact that they're like, we just want to create something that that surrounds and supports the legacy of Blair Witch, I can get on board with that. Absolutely. I usually ask, you know, how how a film has affected um, the guest, whether you've borrowed or stolen or lifted anything from it. You saw Blair Witch so recently that I'm thinking, no, yet, not yet. But Kicking Blood is a kind of an unconventional genre picture and you're playing a version of a character we've seen a million times before in a different way. So is there retroactively, do you see any connection there or is Hmm. it just? Um, yeah, I guess as I'm working through it right now in real time, um, yeah, there is a sense of, um, what I love so much about kicking blood in the script was that it was so genre ambiguous and you couldn't really put your finger on what exactly it was and still to this day when when I watched it I was like I can't quite pinpoint it uh so I think in the same way Blair Witch was totally uh new well commercially new Mm -hmm. uh to a lot of people and uh so I guess in in that sense uh both riff off of a genre and sort of distort it in in a creative way um yeah and in kicking blood i i play a vampire but it's it's far from being a typical vampire you know what what i grew up watching which was buffy the vampire slayer uh it's far from that so yeah in the same way it's it's sort of a uh 
um, I don't want to say bastardization because it's not, but it's a, it's a, it's a different take. I guess that's a nice way to say it. it's a different take on, on a genre, same as Blair Witch. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's playing with the idea that we think we know what's coming. The idea that the viewer will be able to anticipate what happens next gets thrown out the window pretty fast mm-hmm. and you just have to hang on for the ride and see where it goes. Yeah, exactly. And hopefully people do. <laughs> My thanks to Elena Bale, who you can see in Blaine Thurrier's Kicking Blood when it goes into digital release next week. You should also check out the final season of Killjoys if you haven't already. She's so much fun in that. Thanks also to Laura Steen and Jessica Schulman. They know what they did. You can find Elena on Twitter at Elena Bale, all one word. And you can find The Blair Witch Project on Blu-ray and DVD from Entertainment One in Canada and Lionsgate in the U.S., it's also streaming on Netflix, Crave, and Stars in Canada, and HBO Max in the U.S., and available to rent or buy on most VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the podcast is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com Semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 46 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll like it. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you enjoy it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next time for episode 400. Thanks for listening.